When we left off last week, we left off with this question. What endings do you consider better than the beginnings? And we had some uh, very interesting uh, insights on that. Uh, one of them was running a marathon. <laughs> is obviously a lot better at the end than it is at the beginning. Uh, when we talk about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 in verse 8, the end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Literally it says length of spirit is better than height of spirit. Uh, and actually it's dealing with a the heart there where the word spirit is the word heart. And so it's length of heart is better than height of heart. And it's the idea that patience is better than being short of temper and being angry. And why is that mentioned in the same breath as the ending better than the beginning? Because sometimes the endings don't come very quickly, right? So we've got to wait for them. And sometimes we don't get to see how a bad thing can turn out well unless we have enough patience to keep waiting on it. And if we wait for it, we might see and might learn how it does come out well. So we need patience and we need humility to wait for some endings to find out how they can be better. And in verse 9... Solomon says, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. And the, the reason he does this is to emphasize the point that it's a fool that gets angry over time being slow. It's a fool who gets angry because life has its hard knocks and its difficult times. He's saying here that the wise are patient, they wait with humility, they wait with hope also and confidence in God because he's in control and we should not be responding with anger, as tempting as can be. I mean, Steve was just telling us how that men today, because of the situation economically and everything else, loss of jobs, there's a lot of anger. And uh, the instruction of Ecclesiastes is as believers, we need to do something about that anger if we feel that anger. We need to then try to learn how to have greater confidence in God, wait on him, and in spite of the difficulty of waiting sometimes, learn how to do that. And of course, along with this is verse 10, that do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is, about, for it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Uh, we get to thinking that, boy, if I could only go back, <laughs> things were so much better before. They were better before I lost my job. They were better before the house burned down. They were better before a thief broke in. They were better before, and we keep going back and say they're better, they were better, they were better. And there are several points that, that uh, illustrate that we really don't have a good picture or an accurate picture. Because first of all, it demonstrates an ignorance of history. We are either willfully or unknowingly ignorant of the difficult times that existed then, <laughs> either in our own lives or even before our lives if we're wanting to go back too far. Uh, there's also a false theology in that we forget that man has always been sinful and that we have always dealt with a sinful condition and uh, the difficulties that causes in the fallen world. And then sometimes it's because we're just plain blind to the new and greater opportunities that we have today. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, so th there's that. And there's also this idea of being impatient for the future to hurry up and get here. Impatient for that job finally be found. Impatient to have this done. Impatient to see this done, etc. 
And we just need to learn all the way through this of being patient, humble, and wait with confidence in God and don't go back and dream about the past. This is contentment, godly contentment. And basically, godly contentment is patience, realism, and waiting for God, waiting for him and for his completed work. Not what we think would be his completed work, but what he knows is his completed work. And in uh, the same section, in verses 11 through 12, we have wisdom along with an inheritance is good and advantage to those who see the sun. Now, why in the world are wisdom and an inheritance mentioned in the same breath this way? That's one of the things that is kind of mind-boggling at first. You say, wait a minute, he's talking about things that are good in life. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 12, he said, what is good for a man? And now he's listing some of the things that are good. And one of the things that he says is good is wisdom linked together with an inheritance. In other words, wisdom without inheritance is good, but not as good as wisdom with an inheritance. And inheritance without wisdom is bad <laughs> because it's wasted. It is, uh, uh, just disappears rapidly because of foolish handling. And then that inheritance does not get passed on for another generation. And so this is why these two are put together. But notice what it says about it. It says, an advantage to those who see the sun. It's only in this world that that's an advantage. For wisdom is, is protection in the New American Updated, but it's actually the word shadow. It's a shadow, just as money is a shadow. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. And uh, that's not what can be done with an inheritance necessarily. And the idea of shadow is it's temporary. Both an inheritance and wisdom are temporary protection because they're only for life under the sun. And once that's done, it's over. And so those are the things that wisdom and inheritance have in common. And remember, he's just talking about now the things that are good. But notice how this theme of wisdom has come in. And he's saying, yes, inheritance is a good thing. And why is he talking about an inheritance being a good thing? Because what, how, do, how does anyone get an inheritance? Dies. Someone dies. And remember, that's been a theme all the way through, especially chapter 7, where he says it's better to go to a funeral than to a house of feasting. And one of the t things he's talking about is everyone dies. And if everyone dies, what's good in that? Well, he's trying to point out one good. One good is that the succeeding generation receives an inheritance. If they receive that inheritance, it's good and advantage if they use it with wisdom. Now, he's not saying that's the highest good. He's just using one example and uh, saying that's one of the things. He says we, we always think of, of death as being bad or wrong, but he said there's one good thing. He's already mentioned several, but at least one good thing that come out of a death. And that is the inheritance. But to remember, it's only a temporary shelter for preserving life. And his main point in verses 13 and 14 are that God is the one who is in control. He's the one who has control of everything. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So... God is in control. Literally, it says, see the work of God. Look at it. Consider it. Think about it. Observe it. And notice that he says here to enjoy. In the day of prosperity, be happy. And uh, it, it's, it's a concept there that says, 
while you have good, while you're experiencing good, enjoy it. It's a gift of God. So don't miss enjoying the good times. Make certain that you enjoy them. Remember in the bad times, because those are going to occur, that God gives both. Who do you think of in scripture who said that before Solomon? Job, Job 2.10. He said to his wife, should not we receive both good and evil or disaster from God? And uh, he was thankful for that. And we need to remember that. That's what's brought out here at the end of uh, verse 14. God made the one as well as the other. And then remember here that we cannot predict the outcome of either the good or the evil. There's no way. The good times, the bad times, we don't know how they're going to turn out. We don't know what's going to happen after that. In fact, God gives us a mixture of those experiences of life so that we will not discover anything that will be after us. We have to recognize then that we're not in control. That's the point. We're not in control. God is. And so if we have any complaints, complain to God. But be careful how you complain to God. All right? Uh, The psalmist did that, remember? Many psalms have complained. They complained, but they complained in a righteous attitude and also at the same time as they brought their complaints and what they were experiencing and pleading with God to deliver them from the bad times, they also recognized that they could not do it themselves and that God alone could do it and almost every single complaint ends in praise to God and thanks to him for both the bad situation and the anticipated results if they had not yet seen them. Tom? That's right. Many, many times. And so their bodies were left in the wilderness, that first generation of Israelites. They murmured all the time and complained and did not trust God. That's the point. They didn't trust God with what was happening. Well, godly contemplation then, in summary, involves what? God's work is unalterable. God is in control of both prosperity and adversity. So godly contentment on one hand, godly contemplation on the other hand, is how we wrap up this section and a summary then of verses 1 to 14 would look this way number one always live life and is there anyone needs another handout here the slapping one we've got a couple more up here if there's anyone who's missing any, any right here uh, always live life in the light of eternity always live life in the light of eternity okay and if we do that, then we're always looking beyond the sun, right? We live under the sun, but we're looking beyond the sun. We're going to talk more about that in this next half of the chapter. Prepare for leaving this life. We're not going to stay here forever. When I was talking to my mother on the phone, and she said, well, the doctor says that for some reason this atrial fibrillation is self-corrected. And she said, now, she says, I'm not getting real excited about that because she says, I realize that uh, this heart's not going to keep beating forever. <laughs> And I said, well, Mom, we've talked about that, haven't we? And she said, yes. And she said, I just want you to know I'm prepared. I'm ready. She says, I want to go home to be with the Lord. And she said, right now, she says, I'm exhausted. I'm tired. Uh, She said, I feel weak. I'm dizzy. And she says, they haven't solved the problem. But she says, that's not bothering me. She said, because I'm ready. She says, I'm ready. So prepare for leaving this life. We're all going to leave one day. It comes. 
Live wisely, patiently, humbly, thankfully, and confident in God. Notice I did not put another adverb there. It's not live wisely, patiently, humbly, thankfully, and confidently. Because confidently has to do with our attitude. And although we can have confidence, I wanted to make certain that our confidence is because of God. Amen. All right? So we live confident in God. Mark? You know, I have a hard problem. And my doctor has continued tracking that. And uh, I said, what would happen if it got worse? Well, we might have to open heart surgery. <laughs> and you said, no way. Huh? No way. <laughs> That's what my mother is saying now. <laughs> yeah, she has a white wristband now she wears that says no machines, no nothing. It's, she's, she says, I'm ready to go. She says, at 87, I don't need to go through any more surgeries. And she said, if the Lord wants me to go, he'll take me. When he wants to take me, she's already outlived the rest of her family by about 10 years. So she says, I'm ready. So the same way. Right, yep. All right, let's move on to the last half then of this chapter, a person's character in the light of Revelation that skits them to our handout for today. And the emphasis in the second half is on two qualities of personal character, and it's righteousness and wisdom. These are the two qualities that are emphasized and are repeated throughout this last half of the chapter. Charles Swindoll uh, decided that there needed to be a good definition of wisdom, so he came up with this one. I kind of like it. Wisdom is the God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. That's a good definition of what we mean by biblical wisdom, godly wisdom, spiritual wisdom. The God-given, notice it's God-given, ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. So we're going to talk about balanced living in verses 15 through 18. And it begins in verse uh, 15 with, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in, in his wickedness. Uh, Solomon talks about this. This is the 11th time he has said something like that, that I have seen. There's still four more in the remainder of the book. It reminds us that this is a personal observation and a pursuit of knowledge that Solomon has been engaged in, in trying to figure out the problems and questions of life. And he refers to his own life as being a lifetime of futility. That futility is that word there, that Hebrew word hebel that we talked about before, that is vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's the idea of that which is fleeting, that which is insubstantial, that which is an enigma. Uh, we have that same phrase, uh, lifetime is really days, there, uh, same phrase in Job 7:16. Uh, I waste away, I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a breath. It's exactly the same words. In place of futility, the translator used breath. Uh, in Psalm 78:33, so he brought their days to an end in futility, and their years in sudden terror. The same words being used as in Ecclesiastes 7, there in verse 15. And chapter 6, verse 12 in Ecclesiastes, we have the same thing. The word there for years is the word literally days. The few days of his futile life. And then we have the same thing said again in chapter 9, verse 9. All the days of your fleeting life. Notice how the translators here 
had difficulty exactly how they would render that one word. And so it's breath, it's futility, it's uh, enigma, it's fleeting, it's transitory, all of those things that uh, it, it's like we mentioned at the beginning, they're like bubbles, soap bubbles, that they're insubstantial. You reach for them and they pop and they're gone. And that's what he's talking about. He says, my life is going by very rapidly. And as he does this, he makes this observation that a righteous person's life may very well end even though he is continuing to live a righteous life. But on the other hand, what makes that, that's not such a big surprise, but when you see the other side, it makes one wonder and question the inequities of life. A wicked person might experience, excuse me, a wicked person might experience an extended life in spite of the fact that he continues on in his wickedness. And we say, what's the fairness in that? And this is one of the big questions that Solomon deals with and tries to respond to. And really the summary of it is that the length of a person's life does not depend upon his spirituality. It depends upon what God determines. God is in control of the life that we live. Now, before we answer that particular problem, let's deal with uh, another related issue. Because there, Solomon does give an answer to that question. Why this seeming inequity? But let's back up a little bit and look at exactly why it continues to be such a problem to so many people, especially when they read Ecclesiastes. And that is, it appears to be a direct contradiction of what is said in the Law of Moses, especially, say, in the book of Deuteronomy, and what is said in Proverbs as well, so that Ecclesiastes appears to say something totally different than both biblical law and biblical wisdom. Look at Deuteronomy 440. So you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I am giving you today, in order that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may what? Live long, Live long on the land. So why is it that Solomon in Ecclesiastes is saying that that doesn't happen? Is this a contradiction? Look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27, where we have both sides of it dealt with that seem to be exactly opposite of what he says here in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. But here in chapter 7, he's uh, saying almost exactly the opposite. So what about this contradiction? How, how is it working out? Well, first of all, let's remember that the law is speaking about a covenant relationship and speaking about the promises of blessing for righteous, obedient living. All right? There's blessing. And wisdom, like in Proverbs, is building on those principles, repeating them, and establishing general truths that apply generally, but not in every situation. To teach us and give us instruction, then encourage us to live in the right fashion as instructed in the law of Moses. Now, does that guarantee that we have a prolonging or a shortening of life? No, it doesn't. That's not a guarantee. And besides that, who among us knows how long God has determined we're going to live. All right? Let's say God said to, uh, of Tom here that he's got three years left. I hope I'm not a prophet, Tom. All right? I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. I'm just using you as an example. All right? 
Let's say God has, has a time for him to die three years from now, go home and be with the Lord. And let's say Tom continues to live as an obedient, righteous believer. What if he dies before that time? Who of us is going to know he died before the time? No one. We have no idea. You see, God is in complete control. Remember what he did with Hezekiah? When Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and repented, and God extended his life, right? 15 years he extended it. And gave him a wicked son. That's right. And gave him a wicked son. Yeah. Be careful what you ask for. He asked for a longer life because he didn't have a son yet. So God said, okay, I'll give you a long life and you get a wicked son. You know, it's kind of like the people in the wilderness saying, I'm hungry, give us meat. And so he gave them quail and he gave it to where they ate so much that they got sick. <laughs> but, you know, we have no idea. We're not in control of this. God is. So when we look at some, we say, why did that righteous person die so early when they have lived righteously? We have no idea that God may have already extended their life for their obedience. They may have been determined to die at the age of 18 and instead die at 32. And we look at it and say, man, they died early. But we don't know what is in, in God's mind there. And what about the wicked? We see a wicked person die at 90, and we say, why did he live so long and the 32-year-old dies so soon? The 32-year-old's a righteous believer. The 90-year-old here is an unbeliever. Why does he live so long and, and this other person, the other man, lives so few years? We don't know but that what God had said that if, he, if this wicked man would repent and turn to him and leave off his wickedness that he might live to be 110. And so his life's been short. You see, it's all comparative. We do not know. And so therefore, what we see is not how we need to evaluate it. And that's the point Solomon makes here in chapter 7. We do not see what God sees. We do not know what God knows. And it's God who is in control. He's the only one who knows our lifespan that he has determined and whether or not he is going to extend it by how much and why or shorten it by how much and why. So a righteous person might still die younger than some of the wicked persons among whom they live and a wicked person still might live longer than some of the righteous people among whom they live. And we've got to get away from using statistics and the law of averages and everything to try to determine that this is unfair or inequity. Solomon's saying, don't walk by sight, walk by faith. Trust God. Now, we have another issue here. When we're talking so much about life and death, what is involved here? Is it clinical death? Is it physical life? Or is there something more? In the book of Proverbs, over and over again, it says that the wicked walk in darkness and their end is death and their path is death. Could there be a statement here about abundant life, spiritual life, as opposed to clinical death and life? Look at Proverbs 12, 28. In the way of righteousness is life. Notice it's in the way. Does that mean then that those who are unrighteous are living in death? Yes. Right? They're dead in trespasses and sins, right? 
the book of Proverbs brings this out. Who wrote the book of Proverbs? Solomon. Does he understand this principle? He very well might. And when he says, and in its pathway there is no death, does that mean then that a righteous person should never ever die? Of course not. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. So when we see a proverb like that, it's obvious that it's talking about something different than clinical death. It's talking about something different than just mere physical life. It's talking about the abundant life, the godly life. We think of it as eternal life. We think of it as a life with God, the life by the Spirit. In the way of righteousness, there is life everlasting. There's the life that we now live because the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us, provided us, gave us that life. And so the life we now live is the life that he gave to us, not the life we received at birth, but at the new birth, not at the first birth. And his pathway, there is no death, is there's no spiritual death. There's no ultimate separation from God. There's a smooth transition between under the sun and beyond the sun. Therefore, as we're reading Ecclesiastes, we have to keep in mind that even though physical death is uppermost in Solomon's mind, and he's looking at it, we know that because he says everyone dies, and he says we're the same as the animals, they also die. So physical death is his primary reference. But in chapter 7, when he begins to talk about these other issues, he's making a transition to talk more about abundant life, spiritual life. And we need to watch that, and it'll increase as we go through the book when we get to the end. Uh, it'll really come out in, in strong words. That brings us then to verses 16 and 17, which are perhaps the most difficult verses in the entire book. For many of the commentators, I look at about 20-some commentaries as I'm going through and preparing, and, and um, every one of them mentions this is a very difficult one. But many have taken this as moderation, the golden mean. Just, just, just don't be overly righteous, don't be overly wicked, just live somewhere in between, and everything will be all right. Uh, it, that viewpoint, although it may be partially involved, fails to do justice to the verses that we have in 16 and 17. Being over-righteous will not guarantee living longer than anyone else as part of the issue. And being over-wicked will not guarantee dying sooner than anyone else. The real issue here is death and life. How soon will we die? And what is the source of abundant life? Is it our righteousness? And if we leave here today and we go out and say, man, I'm going to dedicate myself to doing more in the church. I'm going to do more of this. I'm going to do more of that. I'm going to witness more to my neighbors. Those may be good things, but why are we doing it? What's the motivation? We've got to do it on the motivation of the mercies of God. The mercy of God has already shown to us, not in order to gain salvation, forgiveness of sins, or to gain his favor. We can't be like Jacob trying to make a deal with God and say, if I do this, you'll give me more life, right? You'll let me live longer? You see, that's what Solomon's getting at here. And he's saying, and those of you who are wicked, if you decide you're tired of this life, you're just going to go out and live all the more wickedly, you have no guarantee that God's going to allow you to end your life that way. That's all he's saying. He says these two paths, one sounds good, the other one automatically sounds bad, 
neither one of them will change what God has determined for your lifespan. Therefore, you need to worship rightly. Next week, during the men's conference, uh, we're, we'll still have the class meet, although there will be a number of the men here missing uh, during that class time. But uh, Dave Stolarski uh, is going to be in here with us. He's not? No, that's me next week. It's you next week. Yeah, Dave Stolarski. Dave's the following. All right, so you're going to get Mike instead. So come ready. All right. Got Mike to, to uh, teach next week, be in here, and then when's he coming? The 15th of October, right, when I go to uh, Washington. All right, he'll be in, Dave be in the 15th of October. He's going to be talking about worship in Ecclesiastes. And he's going to be talking about his, uh, what he's learned, the lessons he's learned from Ecclesiastes that teach him about worshiping God and how to worship God. So you want to be here next week for Mike, and you want to be here on the 15th when I'm gone to uh, hear uh, Dave Stolarski on that. Notice in Ecclesiastes 2.15, the same type of overt or overly extreme type of language being used. Why then have I been extremely wise, Solomon says. As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. In other words, I'm going to die. So what benefit is there to live and be extremely wise? Now he's got to that point where he realizes that the wisdom he has, even though it's extreme, is not God's ultimate wisdom. It's not the wisdom that solves the problems of life. We are not in control of our death. God is. This you have to repeat over and over again because that's really his message. Solomon observes, number one, it is a good thing both to enjoy life while one has it and secondly, to pursue godliness. Look at that in verse 18. It says here, it is good that you grasp one thing and also not to let go of the other. What are those two things? It's that idea of enjoying life and pursuing godliness. Enjoying life, the good God has given, but pursuing righteousness. Question. How do enjoying life and pursuing godliness sometimes come into conflict? Think about it. How... When you're trying to enjoy the good things God's given you, and you're also trying to pursue godliness, where do the conflicts come? What kind of issues arise? Butch. Well, I mean, God gives us trials. So okay, trials cause a conflict there. We try to enjoy trials. Okay, so, all right. Sometimes those trials interfere in our pursuit of godliness because we get sidetracked, right? Okay, getting too involved in the pleasures of life, enjoying it too much, and ignoring pursuing godliness. Yes? All right, Diane. Okay, anyone else? What else? That is where it comes, when we forget that the good is a gift of God. And a gift is not permanent. All right? And so if we latch on to that good thing and enjoy it so much and pour ourselves into it, 
to where we are unwilling to let go when God has determined it should be taken from us, then our pursuit of godliness suffers immensely because we've begun to pursue self rather than God. Huh? Isn't there one gift that lasts? Okay, one, only one gift that lasts, exactly. The gift of Jesus Christ. Well, verses 19 to 22, wisdom rather than perfection. The illustration is the wise man is better than a city with 10 wise leaders. <laughs> All right? They're in a, in a city with 10 wise leaders. You've got 10 wise leaders willing to help and to take care of the needs of the citizenry of the city. One wise man is equal to all of them. He's saying, there, what is this wisdom that's involved? And in the same context, suddenly we run into a passage that verse 20 seems to be quoted in the New Testament. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. That is Romans 3.10. As is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Uh, in Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8.46 at the dedication of the temple, he prayed the same thing. When they sin against you, Lord, for there is no man who does not sin. And here he expands on that. Romans 6.23. We all know this. We memorize it. Have you ever thought about how this fits Ecclesiastes? For the wages of sin. What word is used in Ecclesiastes that is the equivalent of wages? He talked about it. He says, what blank is there with labor? Profit. Profit. Gain. Advantage. All right? Labor has its profit. Labor has its benefit. Labor has its wages. But what's the wages or the profit of sin? And therefore all, because all are sinners. But, what? The free gift. What are the gifts of God in Ecclesiastes? Do they include the abundant life? A life before God? Remember that in this book already, we've been told an imperative to fear God. There is that there, that to enjoy his free gift, his gift, there has to be a fear of God. And it is, what, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, no amount of righteous living can prevent the sin that so easily assails every person and how is it then, if we're sinners, how can we experience life beyond the sun? How can we be with God in the future? Now, I want to stop there for a second because our time is just about up. We've got one minute left. We'll pick up here and finish this up uh, uh, two weeks from now after the men's retreat. One of the things I want you to really think about is the fact that as we are in this section here dealing with uh, wisdom that Solomon is talking about a wisdom beyond anything he has and he was given his wisdom by God but what kind of wisdom was it it was not total wisdom it did not involve the ultimate wisdom about which he's going to speak here 
And one of the things we have to stop and ask ourselves about is when we look at others who go through trials in the Old Testament, we especially look at Job, we'll talk about this next week or two weeks from now in more detail. Job knew his Redeemer. Question, did Solomon know his Redeemer? Does he ever reveal that in the book of Ecclesiastes? I believe that much of what he's talking about right here has to do with life beyond physical life, has to do with wisdom beyond the wisdom he was given, a wisdom that resides only with God, and that it is only God who can give that wisdom which results in life, life everlasting, and it is part of the issue he's struggling with. And when he gets to the end of this chapter, chapter 7, when we finish it two weeks from now, and we, and we see it, we're going to find out that he is, Solomon here, is not struggling with just what he sees in life on a general plane, a physical plane. In chapter 7, he has moved on into a spiritual plane in which he is dealing with the spiritual struggles of this life and preparing for life beyond the sun. There's a huge evangelistic benefit here in seeing this and understanding it. And as we walk through it, and as I point these out as we go through it, I hope that uh, you see the, uh, uh, the benefit of it. And I think it's one of the reasons why Paul chose to quote this in Romans 3, where he's talking about what you need to believe, first of all, before you can place your trust in God. We have to realize that we're sinners without hope and that we cannot save ourselves. And that any righteousness that God would accept is not our righteousness. It's only his righteousness. And that is what Solomon is gradually, step by step, working toward in this section of Ecclesiastes. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you and praise you for everything that you've given to us. And we ask, Lord, that you'll help us, each one, to take the lessons that you've shared with us here through Solomon and his experience and his thinking and cause us to contemplate on these issues and realize there's something more important than just physical life. And yes, we all die, but are we ready? Are we prepared? Have we obtained that ultimate wisdom? Do we know our Redeemer? We pray, Lord, that you'll just help us in our own lives to realize these truths, to rejoice in them, to thank you for them, and to be active in sharing those truths with those around us who still are wrapped up in only this physical life and its complexities and its difficulties, its puzzles, its questions, and have not turned to the God who made them. And we just pray that you'll help us to lead them in that way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.